You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. So we're going to get into it, and uh, today is our second to last week in the book of Mark. We've been going through it systematically since the start of the church, and if you weren't here the last few weeks, I'm excited to announce that we're jumping into the book of Philippians next. So Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, written from prison in Rome, we're going to be jumping into that um, very shortly, obviously in like two weeks from now. Uh, And just a heads up. If you're mindful of this, which I'm sure most of you are, is that currently we've been, I've been teaching out of the New Living Translation, and I'm actually going to switch it up and uh, teach out of the NIV, the New International Version for the book of Philippians. So, uh, yep, yeah, I know if you have a Bible then in that translation, you might have to switch it or whatever, but that's okay. Uh, We will have Bibles in the back for you. Right now, they're New Living Translation. We're going to switch those to NIV. And uh, just a quick note, there's a bunch of great translations. And this is like a whole other side conversation because maybe you're like, no, there's not. Uh, We can talk about that. But uh, differences are mostly readability. And it's totally okay to switch translations if it is a good one. Anything like the NLT, NIV, NASB, ESV, New King James, OK James, those are all good. Uh, there's not, all, not all translations are good, but those are good ones. Um, so we will offer NIV. I'll be teaching that in two weeks back on the tables. We mostly always have it on PowerPoint too. Or obviously, there's always your phone, and you can get any translation real quick on that. Um, but... Before we jump into our text, which is Mark 15, 21 through 41, I want to give a quick recap, read the text, and then we'll pray. So last week, we looked at the first 20 verses of Mark 15. And if you were here or you listened to the podcast, if you remember, Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was taken to the high priest's home and put on trial, and there was a trial as to what uh, we, sh- we should do. And then what happened was is they brought Jesus to, the, to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor at the time, and the crowd chose to free a guilty man and condemn Jesus to death an innocent man. And so there was this trial that went on and Jesus was arrested and he was beaten. And where we left off was he was led to the cross. And what we looked at was an aspect of the gospel. The man that was freed was a condemned criminal and Jesus being an innocent man was traded for his life. And we looked at that as a picture of our own spiritual state, that we're sinners that we deserve death, but Jesus traded his perfect life for us and he suffered and died for us so that we didn't have to. And we we talked about this idea of substitutionary atonement, this big theological word that means that Jesus took our place. He, He stepped in and he died the death that we deserve to die. If you haven't listened, go back and listen. If you hear a little wind, it's because I have so many fans on me at the moment change that for you. That's still a little hurricane. Hold on. How about now? Okay, good. Uh, So if you haven't listened to that, please go back and listen to it. You'll be blessed by that. Uh, And in 
the last verse of last week in verse 20 of Mark 15, it says that they led Jesus away to be crucified. And so today we are looking fully into the crucifixion, Jesus's death on the cross. So why don't you read with me Mark 15, 21 through 41. It says this, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country. This is on the way to the cross. Jesus is walking. And they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, and he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on the right and one on the left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so, who, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself? Let the, this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped result, uh, insults at, on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Verse 38, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger of Joseph, and Siloam. In, in Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. God, thank you for this this morning. Thank you for your death on the cross and all that it means for us. We pray, God, that as we, as we look into it and study it, that we, would, that we would hear from you, that you would speak to us, that you would speak to our innermost being and to the, to the depths of our heart that we would hear from Jesus this morning. And so, God, I pray that you would make the cross that much more powerful and potent in our lives. Would you do that this morning? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what we need to understand, um, well, reading scripture in general, but specifically this this morning, is the Jewish significance. When reading any book of the Bible, specifically our text this morning, we need to understand the culture and the audience that it was written to. It was not written in 2018 in Hawaii, right? It was written in the Middle East in a Jewish culture 2,000 years ago. 
And we need to realize that it's, there's heavy Jewish significance to what is happening. And we're going to unpack that a bit as we go on today. But it's this, what happens here and what Jesus did on the cross, there's specific things that he did or said that are extremely potently important for Israel and the Jews. It's absolutely unbelievable what is happening in front of Jewish eyes and hearts. The significance, though, is for the whole world. Jesus came to die not only for the Jew, but also for the Gentile, for the whole world. But in order to fully understand the significance of it, because we're not in Israel 2,000 years ago, it is worthwhile to look into that. There is so much meaning and significance to the cross, right? It is by far the most significant event that has ever happened or will ever happen ever. If you're a Christian, you've heard about it a lot. So unfortunately, you've been maybe, it's lost its allure or its romance. But I'm hoping God will stir in you again the reminder of how significant the cross is. But Jesus dying on the cross, what we just read today, what's also in Matthew, Luke, and John's gospel is the, the crux of our salvation, the most important thing that has ever happened or will happen. And if last week we looked at one aspect of the cross a bit in depth, today I want to actually look at three different aspects of what the cross is and what it does for us. There's so many nuances and details and rabbit holes we could go into, but for our text today, we're going to look at three aspects of what the cross does. If you're taking notes, or if you're ordered that way, um, analytical at all, here's the three points that we're going to go through today. Number one, the cross fulfills prophecy, proving Jesus' deity, who he is, the Son of God. The cross fulfills prophecy, proving Christ's deity. We're going to look at that. Number two, we're going to look at the, the, the fact that Jesus' death on the cross paid the price of sin in full. He paid our debt, but he paid it in full forever. It's really important that we learn that and know that. And number three, the cross, the, the, the son's death gives us access to the father. The son's death, Jesus' death on the cross gives us access to God the father. You, you in it? You in it with me? Let's do this. Number one. All right. The cross fulfills prophecy proving Christ's deity. The first thing I want to do is I just want to explain this setting to you, this place called Golgotha, right? If you remember in the story, Jesus was in the Roman courts. He was just arrested. He was beaten. Now he's led from those courts to a place called Golgotha. It's called the place of the skull. Well, if you talk to anybody, there's a bit of debate where in Jerusalem that is. But I want to show you an old picture of a rock formation that many, including myself, think is where this was. It's a place. Do you see the skull in the rock formation? I don't know. Can you, can you not see that? Okay, okay. Sorry. I got to go up. I see shaking hands. Two eyes, eh, kind of a nose, and a mouth. See this? This is right outside of the walls of the city of Jerusalem. I'm talking, you walk outside the famous city walls of Jerusalem, 
And you'll see this on one side of the city. Many believe this is the place of the skull. That's why they named it that. This is Golgotha. Fast forward to right now, it doesn't look like that. There's buildings surrounding it. There's a graveyard on top. It's actually a bus stop. It's a bus stop. You pick up your bus there. But that is the same rock formation as you saw in the old picture, the uh, two eyes and the mouth. Did it work to do the side by side? Ah, is that going to work for you guys? Can you? No, not really. You can see it. Many believe that is the place of the skull. Pretty cool. Um, pretty cool significance. So what happened here on the place of the skull, if we're working with that uh, theory, when Jesus died upon the top of that place, upon Golgotha, what it did was it actually fulfilled prophecy 800 years prior that was written in the book of Psalms, Psalm 22. We're gonna, I'm going to show you it right now. Psalm 22 was written 800 years prior to the death of Christ on Golgotha. Are you with me? So remember, if you're a practicing Jew, you've had to memorize much of the Torah. You know the Hebrew scriptures and specifically, you know messianic scriptures. Any scripture in the Hebrew Bible that prophesies about the Messiah, you knew. Psalm 22 is one of these. Psalm 22 is called a messianic psalm. It's, it's describing the Messiah. The Messiah, when he comes, this is what will happen to him. Let me read you Psalm 22, verse 1, and also verse 14 through 18. One more precursor. When you're reading this, remember what we just read in our text this morning. Verse 1, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot sheared. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs uh, have surrounded me. A band of evildoers have encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look at me and they stare. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. If you would have read this, you would have said, well, that's, that's the crucifixion. If you were standing there on that day on Golgotha, when they were dividing the garments, when he was crucified, when he was pierced, his hands and his feet, what would happen is your arms would get dislocated, not broken, but dislocated. And the soldier, when they were gonna check if Jesus was um, dead or not, a lot of times what you do is you would take like a spear or a rod and you would actually break the legs of the person on the cross so that it would become harder to hang there, nothing to stand on, and you would die quicker. That's not what happened to Jesus. None of his bones were broken, right? Remember, he was already dead, and the soldier pierced Jesus' side. Even, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are the very words that Jesus utters. 800 years, side by side. What's important to know is not only the similarity, but also the timing of Psalm 22 and Mark 15, or the gospel. 
It's exactly detailing what would happen to the Messiah. And that's why even at the end of our text today in verse 39, it says when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this was the son of God. Even the man that crucified him would have seen this correlation that, oh my goodness, this was the son of God. This was the Messiah that we just killed. So crazy about this is that when I went to Israel more than 10 years ago on my first trip, at the Wailing Wall, at the Western Wall, uh, we met this guy and a good friend of mine. Uh, he, he, this guy that we met was an Orthodox Jew. He did not believe that Jesus was who he said he was. And my friend shared Psalm 22 next to the gospel accounts. And this guy was undone. He had never seen the gospel accounts in the New Testament. That's not the Jewish Bible. When he saw them side by side in that moment, he began to weep and he gave his life to the Lord because he could not believe it. Psalm 22 is Jesus in the cross. The correlation made it, and even to this day, this is used with Jews to connect the dots that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. And so the cross, in light of ancient scripture, was the ultimate validity to Christ's deity. It's really significant. We would never know that. We would never get that. We would never know that Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm, but Jews would. And so I want to bring us to that level for a moment, looking at the potency of the cross. Pretty cool, right? Pretty amazing. Number two, what we see in this is that Jesus' death on the cross paid the price of sin in full. To tie this all together for us, it's important that we actually look at John's account of the cross, specifically John 19.30. This is John's account of the crucifixion, and right before Jesus breathes his last, it says in John 19.30, therefore, when Jesus was, uh, had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. It is finished in Greek is tetelestai, you guys might have heard that before. That's a very common uh, uh, in Christianity that when Jesus breathed his last, he said, tetelestai. That means it is finished or paid in full. What that means that Christ finished something or what does it mean that Christ finished it? It, me it means that he is the final sacrifice that needed to be made to atone for sins. Let me explain. If you know anything about scripture, specifically the Old Testament, you cannot escape the idea of animal sacrifices, specifically in the temple. I mean, you, you can't miss it. Judaism was built upon the animal sacrificial system and purposes. Much of the Old Testament, you'll encounter this. It was an integral part of Jewish life. Uh, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, specifically the book of Leviticus, lays out uh, in like seven chapters, like animal sacrifices. What sacrifices should be for what? How to atone for sins? Who should do it? How the high priest should do it? And even the tabernacle and the temple was kind of centered around this idea that people would bring animal sacrifices to the high priest and the high priest would give these sacrifices up to God to cover over your sins. And this is how it worked. This is very much um, 
a norm and a normal practice for every Jew. All the Old Testament in all of that was pointing to this moment of Christ's sacrifice. If you remember uh, John the Baptist, we see him in like the very start of the book of Mark. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Christ. He was talking about Christ before Jesus was on the scene. Right? He was baptizing people in the Jordan River and he, was, and he was preaching the gospel before Jesus was even a thing. But one day on the banks of the Jordan River, John the Baptist saw Jesus and he yelled out in John chapter one, verse 29. He yells out, John 1, 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he's calling Jesus a lamb. And he's saying Jesus is the Lamb of God who is going to take away the sins of the world. Well, that's not what happened when you gave up, when you did animal sacrifices. You covered your sins for a time, but you had to continually do it. You had to go back with more lambs and more bulls and more goats year after year, and you had to present those to the temple because your sins weren't like forgiven forever. They were atoned for for a time. So when John the Baptist in front of the multitude said, this is the lamb of God, even, even that, like what do you mean this man's a lamb? But he's referring to the sacrifice that Jesus would make. This is the perfect, sinless, spotless lamb of God that's going to die and his death is going to be the sacrifice that takes away the sins of who? The world. I mean, you have, that's like a crazy statement to make. That couldn't happen. That did not happen. You covered up your sin, but you did not take it away. I want to throw another theological term at you, and it's called propitiation. Propitiation. We see this in 1 John chapter 1, 1 through 2. It says this, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not only yours only, but those of the whole world. Okay, this is a big deal, so we got to understand this. Propitiation. That word there that 1 John uses, this idea, this theological truth, means that Jesus Christ is the sacrifice that satisfies. That's what propitiation in, the, in about the easiest form means. When it says that Jesus Christ is the propitiation of our sins, it means that he is the sacrifice that pays the price of sin for good once and for all, and it satisfies the wrath of God. Jesus Christ is the sacrifice that satisfies. His death satisfies the debt and penalty of sin before God. That's why his last breath, why Jesus would say, it is finished, paid in full. Because all the debts were called in to the cross. And what I mean by that is all the debt that we accrued from our own sin was called in and it was put on Jesus and Jesus paid it. And he didn't just pay part of it 
It wasn't a payment plan. It was in full. It was done. Like, it is finished, paid in full. Can I get an amen? Like, that, that's, 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 that's propitiation. He is the sacrifice that satisfied, paid in full. The book of Hebrews does a real good job at connecting the old covenant and the new covenant. What happened in the Old Testament with the animal sacrifices and the New Testament with Jesus being the ultimate sacrifice. On your own time, you should just read all of Hebrews 9 and all of Hebrews 10, but I'm going to give you a little snippet right now, okay? Hebrews 10, 1 through 5, 10 through 13, 8, you'll see it's on the, it's on the, it's on the uh, screen. It says this. The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come. Not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could provide perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped for the worshipers would have purified themselves once and for all, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Exactly what John the Baptist said. He cancels this first covenant in order to put the second into effect. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest, speaking of Jesus, offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time when he sat down in the place of honor at right, uh, God's right hand. And when sins have been forgiven, there is no need to offer any more sacrifices. Like, to Tetelestai, paid in full, it is finished. For every single Jew, this is Unbelievable. Like this was the way in which they got to God and were cleansed by God. This was everything they knew. And Jesus said, that's all done. I was and am the perfect sacrifice to take away the sins of the world. And for us, the gospel, these truths, if the reason why it's good news, because what Jesus did on the cross is called the finished work of Christ. Like the finished work of Christ on the cross. When we're forgiven by Christ, right? When we repent and when we turn from our sins and we ask God for forgiveness and when we, when we receive this, he forgives us and he pays the penalty of our sin forever. So this is why, if you've heard the gospel preached correctly, is that Jesus did the work and we don't have to. Like, we don't need to strive. We don't, we don't earn our salvation. It's by grace we've been saved through faith. Not by our works, but by his work. By his finished work. Amen? Are you with me? Do you see that? 
I hope that it's welling worship up in you. That, that, that would be the goal. That would be the idea, is to remember what God has done in his son. And the last point, point here is this. The son's death gives us access to the father. And this is really good. This just brings it home. In verses 37 and 38 of our text today, look what it says. Look at your Bible. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. Again, that may mean nothing to you. Well, this is what it meant. This is what it means. During the lifetime of Jesus, the temple in Jerusalem was the center of all Jewish religious life. Even at the time, it's Passover, and there are hundreds of thousands of Jews gathered in Jerusalem at the temple, bringing sacrifices, bringing the lamb of God, bringing the lamb to the altar. It is where worship and sacrifice took place. In Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 9, read it later, it tells us that the temple, the veil in the temple, separated the holy of holies from the earthly, from, from everything else, from the rest of the temple. And in the holy of holies was where the Ark of the Covenant was. And the Ark of the Covenant, housed the Ten Commandments, is where the Ark of the Covenant represented the person and the power and the presence of God. And only one man, the high priest, once a year on Yom Kippur could enter into the Holy of Holies. And literally, he, I mean, it was like a whole ritual before, like a week's worth of cleansing himself to be in God's presence. And he actually tied a rope on his ankle. This is just true. And there was a bell. And people would be on the rope outside of the Holy of Holies. This high priest would go in in God's presence to atone for all of Israel's sins for the year. And the bell, they'd have to hear the bell, keep it going. And if they heard the bell stop, he was dead. And they had to pull him out. This is the thing, this is the thing, this is the practice. But God's presence was reserved for one person once a year. That's the point. That's the Holy of Holies. There's a huge veil Historians think this veil was 60 feet tall and upwards of four inches thick. I mean, this is a big piece of fabric. It's immense. And what it's showing is this is God's glory and his goodness, but there's separation because sin has done that. Sin has separated us from God's presence. It was a visual representation of the separation of sin. But what happened was, when Jesus died, it says that the veil that I just spoke of in the temple was torn. It was torn from top to bottom. And the tearing of the temple veil was a visual picture to the world of what Christ just did to humanity in relation to sin. Because no longer is it one man once a year that can experience God's presence. It's now all of humanity. Because Christ's sacrifice on the cross restored a broken relationship, freed us from sin, and restored communion once again with God. And that's what it's saying. That's why it's so significant that at the moment Jesus died, 
In the city of Jerusalem, the veil was torn, showing the whole world that I have made a way for my people to be with my father now. So incredibly significant that through Christ, now God's people are no longer separated from God's presence and his sacrifice on the cross has given humanity access to God. That's why when the book of Hebrews says that we, all of us, can boldly approach God's throne of grace to receive help in our time of need, that would have been like, you're crazy, what do you mean? But Jesus Christ has made a way for us to commune with God the Father. This is the point of the cross. Like, this is it. Like, if I was to ask you, if we were to ask our kids right now, why did Jesus die on the cross? Majority answer from you and I and from our kids would be to forgive our sins, which is true. But that's a means to an end. See, forgiveness of sins is to restore a relationship. That's the point. See, the end is us. The end goal of Jesus dying on the cross and forgiving sins, the end goal is to remove sin, which is a barrier that separated us from God. Sin has not allowed us to have communion, oneness, and withness with God. And so when we say, why did Jesus die on the cross? To restore a broken relationship with the Father. That is the point of the cross. Forgiveness of sins is just to get the barrier out of the way. Yes, it's important. Yes, it's needed. Without that, we could never come to the Father. That's why God was willing to send his son to suffer such a brutal death was to get us back. Like, like to ransom and redeem us back to himself for all of eternity. I mean, the writer also in Hebrews says this. You guys have to see this. Hebrews 12, 2. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What's the joy? What, what is the joy in that text? I mean, this is a little Bible study. What's the joy set before Jesus? It's us. We're the joy. We're the ones that Jesus was thinking about. I want them to be with my father. The father sent the son so we could be with him. We are the joy that Jesus went to the cross for so that a broken relationship could be mended. The point of the cross is so that we could be with God. If you ever wanna hear a love story, that's the best one. That's the best one, right? You see all these love stories and oh my gosh, this person would do anything for that person and they'll go to the ends of the earth and they'll give up everything. Well, look what God did. He sent his son to die a sinner's death to get us. God doesn't want anything from us. He just wants to be with us. See, it comes full circle. Do you remember the garden? 
Do you remember Genesis 1 and 2? Do you remember creation? What was God's intent? What did God always want to do? He just wanted to hang out with humanity free of sin in his creation. That's it. That's literally the point of the world. The point of the world is God just wants us to enjoy him free of sin in all his glory. Sin has messed everything up. So God sent his son to fix what was broken. And the cross restores everything back to how it was supposed to be. God's original intent was for man to be with him, enjoying him in all his glory. The cross redeems man and restores him back to this place. And in Christ, communion with the Father is now restored. It's fixed. It's reconciled. And we get to be with God for all of eternity. Do you see that? That is the beauty, the wonder of the cross. That God made a way to be with him once again. And the promise is, is that if we surrender and we give up and we turn from our own selfish ways and we say, God, I need you. You're my savior. I, wanna, I want my sins to be forgiven. I want to live for you. The Bible says we're saved. And what happens is, is we're redeemed and we're reconciled to the Father. And what God promises is he says, I want to promise you abundant life. Here, an eternal life in heaven. That is what the cross gives us, is it gives us a future and a hope and joy and life in that abundantly. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the cross. We do not know what we would do without it. The cross, Lord, is everything to us. And eternity is not long enough to praise and thank you for it. And so, God, even in this time of worship, as, the, as we enter in right now, we ask, God, that we would worship you for who you are and what you've done and all that you've given us in it. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to offer more sacrifices. We don't have to work harder. We don't have to try harder. You did it, paid in full. Now we just receive and enjoy and live for you the way that it's intended. And thank you, Lord, that our life here is just momentary. That there is coming a time where we will not have to live in a fallen world with the effects of sin that one day when we see you face to face, it will be as it should be. Us and our God freed from sin in all your glory. God, would you instill hope in us for that time? We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. As always, after the sermon, we want to give you guys some response time in light of God's word and what he showed you and how he spoke to you. Um, we just have a few songs of worship and we really see this time as the most valuable time where this is a time where you commune with God. Um, whether that be standing up and raising your hands or even getting on the carpets up here. That's why we have these up here. It's just to like kneel before the Lord or come before the Lord humbly or whatever it is. 
got communion to the right or to the left, and a communion is a way to remember the cross. Jesus instituted communion, and he says, as often as you take the bread and the juice, do it in remembrance of the sacrifice I made on the cross. And so we can do this as, whenever you want. And then also we've got uh, Butch and Winter back there uh, by the door on, the, on my right, your left, with lanyards that would just love to pray for you. If you need prayer, if, if this isn't you, but you want this to be you, if you want to receive what God has, or if you just need prayer for everything, they would love to pray for you back there. Um, but let's make the most of this time and worship God for how good he is. Amen.